0: We are in Revelation chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 today, Revelation 1 verses 1 through 3. If I say to you this morning that, hey, you're picking, oh yeah, you young people can be dismissed to go to junior church, ages 3 years old to the second grade. Um, if I say to you that you're speaking in an apocalyptic tone, that's probably not a compliment to how you're speaking. You're probably talking in some kind of a dark, mysterious, um, dystopian kind of a way. But that is not what the word apocalypse means in and of itself. The the meaning of the word apocalypse is revelation, a revealing, an unfolding. And so for Christians, as we think about the book of Revelation or as we think about apocalypse, it is not dark and foreboding at all. It is not a book to, uh, to fear, but it can be a challenge. There are some signs and some symbols in the book of Revelation that are hard to interpret. And we ask ourselves, how do we interpret them? Are they metaphors or do we interpret them literally? Today, as a matter of introduction, I want to lay out some principles. So the first half of what we're doing, maybe 20 minutes of the sermon, will be preparation for the book of Revelation. And the last 12 will be today's text, the verses 1 through 3. Uh, We have some symbols in the book of Revelation like the symbol 666. How do you interpret this? Uh, How do you approach the number 666? We have another uh, symbol in, in the book of Revelation. These locusts. These locusts have the hair of women, a gold of crown, a tail like a scorpion's, and they torment man. How do you interpret symbols like these locusts? I hope that we have some grounding today as we open up the Word of God and and as we approach it for how you handle these difficult symbols. In the end, the book of Revelation does not exist to scare Christians. It does not exist to give you anxiety about the future. It exists to bless you in manifold ways as you hold its teachings. There are seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. We'll see one today. A Beatitude is a blessing like Blessed Are the Peacemakers, there's going to be seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. It is truly a, uh, a, uh, a blessed book. The other thing I want you to note is that it, um, it, uh, this book self-attests that its reason for existing is your understanding. In the very opening sentences, it says, the reason this is here is to give you clarity. Let's look at verse number one. The time is near. Let's pray. God, as we look at your word today, we ask that you would truly bless us with an understanding of the things that are about to take place. And Father, we pray that you'd give us clarity. We pray, Lord, that uh, nobody would go away from this book with nightmares and fears, that God, all who trust Christ, would rest supremely and delightfully. and, And Father, even take more note of their life and how it plays into your unfolding plan. And God might each of us keep the teachings of this book and be blessed by it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to go through these uh, principles of approaching the book. How do you approach this uh, apocalyptic book, this revelatory book? Um, I am basically lifting the outline. It's, it's mostly my words, but the outline for uh, an approach, uh, principles of approaching this, would come from Mark Hitchcock's book, 101 Answers uh, about the Book of Revelation. We have five copies on the top shelf of our book, sh- book cart if you want to uh, get a copy and read it at home. It's easy reading, it's light reading, uh, it's $10 or whatever you can afford. And, um, and so you just uh, mark that on an offering envelope and, and put that in the offering uh, as book cart. And uh, you, can, you can take this uh, at home for further study if you would like. So now, there are four approaches to uh, approaching the book of Revelation in terms of its time frame and what time frame Revelation is addressing. Here at Cornerstone, we take a futurist approach. Now, the four approaches are these. Um, the first one is preterist. The word preterist means Past. I have a cousin, Eugene, and I, don't, I can talk about him because I know he will never hear one of my online sermons. He does not know how to operate a computer. He does not have a cell phone. I have to call him on a landline. I mean, he is a, he is a butcher like I was. Uh, he's spent 30 years in the kill room and now he's up front due to health reasons. And, uh, and so he is as backwards as you can be um, and uh, just classic Graham material and, from Missouri. And... Um, you know, and, and for years as in our adult life, I didn't know where he stood with the Lord, and, and you know, only, only recently in, in years past have we uh, gotten back together and spent time, and, and I wondered about his salvation, and I find out, well, you know, I'm a preterist, and I'm a five-point Calvinist, and I'm like, you know what those are? <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. All right. I, you know, it, it turned out he fell in love with the preaching and writing of R.C. Sproul, who is a preterist, a partial preterist himself. And so my cousin Eugene just followed him into that, and I am just so delighted. I am not going to talk Eugene out of being a preterist, okay? I'm just delighted that he is, and that he is following our Lord with me. Um, but um, uh, basically, uh, they would see everything as having happened in the past. So Nero would have been the beast. Uh, Babylon in Revelation 17 through 18 would be Jerusalem. Revelation 19, they would see as Jesus coming to destroy the temple in 70 AD. Now, because of that, they have to have an earlier date than most people would uh, accept for the, for the writing of John here, the book of Revelation. Most of us see this as an, uh, a 95 AD book. And internal evidence even supports this, not just uh, you know, early church history, but internal evidence as well. When you go through the seven churches... They seem like second-generation churches. There'll be challenges. You need to get back to what you were back when you were first started. And in 65 A.D., they were really first getting started. So um, we would see a later date for the, uh, for the uh, book of Revelation. Um, but they would have to see 65 A.D. because it predicts some things that have not yet happened. And that temple went down in seventy. 70- AD. Um, A big justification for the view is the proximity language in in, in the book of Revelation. Uh, Because the book of Revelation says these things are going to happen soon. These things are at hand. And so that would be a really good argument to be a preterist. Uh, some of the problems, the global prophecies uh, for all mankind really have to be localized to Jerusalem, 70 AD. So there's a little interpretive, uh, less than satisfying thing that you have to do. Um, you know, if you're preterist today, I'm not going to talk you out of it, um, but uh, this is not my understanding of the book. Another view is historist. And uh, the historist would say the book of Revelation really stands for everything that's been happening in the church age. And so, uh, you know, you're trying to fit all these symbols, all of these events into various aspects of the church history. And, and um, you know, so you kind of sit in your study as a pastor and you study uh, the history of the church and you study the book of Revelation. Oh, yeah, that fits and that fits. And so that, that's a historist approach. Uh, another approach is the idealist. That's, that means the book of Revelation doesn't talk about anything literal. These are just spiritual ideas ideas and symbols um, and, and lessons and principles, things that you just, you just kind of, oh, that's a nice thought, you know, but it, there's nothing literal, past or future or present to the book of Revelation. That's the idealist. We are futurists, which we would say, Revelation uh, up to Revelation 3, you're dealing with history, uh, the seven churches in, in Turkey, um, but um, uh, chapters 4 through 22, we would say, are yet future to us. And, uh, and, of course, a big argument against this futurist view is, why would John write to a bunch of Christians 2,000 years ago about events that aren't going to happen for 2,000 years? What do they care? How does it affect them? And, and our answer to that is that's the nature of prophecy. If, if you look at the, uh, Isaiah 53, was written 700 years before Jesus came. Well, why would anybody care to know that, that the Messiah was going to come and be bruised for our iniquity? Uh, your life fits into God's unfolding history, and history is going somewhere. History is going somewhere, and you're a part of that, and so that is why we have this book. And for us, even today, these events could possibly be yet another 2,000 years into the future. We don't have the final word on that. And so um, uh, history is going somewhere, and it's, just a, it's, it's a blessing, and it's, it's a reminder for how to live your life because your life fits in God's unfolding plan. Uh, the last thing we'd say is it really does seem rather fitting that God's final book in the canon of Scripture would be a book about the future. If you're going to have a book that really deals primarily with the future, you'd think it'd be at the, you know, at the end of the writings, and, and it really fits nicely there. But uh, that, that's our church. We're, we're futurists, and that's going to be the paradigm with which we're going to approach the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and following. Um, now, I've already said this, but we understand the purpose of this book is to bring clarity of understanding to believers. The purpose of this book is not to bring confusion. So we're understanding that there are some things that you should walk away understanding for having studied the book of Revelation. And again, the very first verse says this is why God gave the book, so that his servants, to show his servants what things must soon take place. Now, um, Revelation is not all new material. There are 278 allusions to the Old, Qu- Old Testament. That's a Mark uh, Hitchcock's count. 278 allusions, references to the Old Testament. There is not one single quotation of the Old Testament scriptures, as I understand it. But by some people's count, there are up to 278 allusions to the Old Testament. So it's not all new material. Um, symbolism. There's a lot of symbolism, like the locust with woman's hair and Scorpion's tail and all of that. Now, symbols refer to something. They never refer to nothing. Okay, they refer to something. So Jesus sets a standard in chapter 1. He's going to tell us about seven lampstands with uh, seven stars in his right hand. And then he's going to say, the lampstands stand for the seven churches. The stars stand for the seven angels. So he really sets a stage to say, these are symbols. They're Different, but they mean something. And so look for meaning behind the symbols. And so we will. But how do you interpret the symbols? Because, you know, I mean, like those locusts, we could say, boy, that with the scorpion tail, that's like an Apache helicopter with shooting, you know, it's like, okay, I think that's ridiculous. I really think that's ridiculous. Um, I I don't know that you'll get in trouble spiritually doing that, but I just think that's ridiculous, okay? Um, I I, I would suggest a different way to look at this. Number one, uh, explanation of the symbol is in the immediate context. We see that in chapter one where he gives uh, the the interpretation. You are not free to tell me that the seven lampstands refers to anything other than the seven churches that are being addressed because the immediate context told me that. You can say, well, in the Old Testament, lampstands stood for this. I don't care. The immediate context told me what to look for. So that's going to be number one. That's the highest level of interpretation. Now, if the immediate context doesn't tell me, then I'm going to go to the rest of the scripture. Uh, Old and New Testament, to see if if those symbols are there. And I'm going to look for the reference there. So, for instance, when it, the, the, if we're referring to the dragon, that serpent, my mind, if the immediate context doesn't say it's the devil and Satan, then I'm going to say, oh, that that serpent is Satan. That, I, that's just where I'm going to go. Now, it does so happen that in Revelation 12.9, It does both. It says, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Okay, so, uh, you know, we have the whole scriptures there, but there the the trump card was played. Immediate context told us exactly what that serpent and that dragon were. Now, if those two don't work, we're going to take it literally. Literally. So if the locusts, as a symbol aren't defined in the context as these are really something else. And if we don't have anything in our Bibles about locusts that define the symbol, uh, I could immediately think of, of course, the plague, Pharaoh's plague. But these locusts are bizarre, right? Okay, so I'm just going to take it literally. That out of the smoking pit, literal locusts come. Okay, and so... um, uh, as I as I take this, I would ask you this: What trouble can I get into taking these things literally? How you know? How could I uh, you know? Could I be representing the fury of God's wrath and His plagues on mankind? <laughs> I I just don't think that's a danger here. I just I just take the locusts as being literal. Okay. All right. So um, th- those are the rules. Oh yeah. By the way, if you're <laughs> that is actually a bug. That's a real bug. If, you've ever, if you like photography like I do, that's a macro photo of a longhorn beetle from Newsweek. DP Review, they were doing um, studies on macro photography. And DP Review has this picture of a locust. Check out those teeth. All right. I mean, you know, so God has already made some pretty amazing creatures with some pretty bizarre features, and um, and this looks like a hor- the scorpion fly sounds terrible. That looks like a terrible uh, hurtful tail. It's it's actually that that tail serves other purposes than stinging. But you, you get the idea that God has already God has already um, made incredible bizarre creatures. Uh, And and so these locusts are big enough that you're going to see, okay? Um, And and we'll, uh, in fact, listen to these locusts because uh, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. So that's their appearance. Something looks like a horse prepared for battle. So like shields. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like woman's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots. So they're going to make quite the noise coming at you. I don't know if you've ever been in a tornado or a straight line wind. I bet you heard it coming long before. A straight line wind, you hear that long before it comes and it gets louder and louder and louder. And everything's still all around you. And all you know is, man, when this gets here, it's going to be bad. <laughs> and it was. Okay. Um, and, and so um, the, these locusts, they're going to be coming like the sound of many chariots rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. So um, I just take it as literal. And I don't know how I can get in trouble doing that. Okay. If you have any ideas uh, how I could or if you have a better suggestion, let me know. Um, The numbers are to be taken literally, but also full of symbolic meaning. These are the numbers that Mark lists for that happen in the uh, book of Revelation. And and, and a lot of these numbers have significance. You know, the ones that jump out, 6, the number of man. So the number 666, um, I think there's something symbolic behind that, the number of man. But I also literally think the guy is going to have 666 somehow attached in his name, or it's going to be the, his name, or the number of his name. I, you know, it's symbolic. The number seven, it's a symbolic number of completion. And, and, and Jesus will open with the number seven, referring to seven literal churches and seven stars. And perhaps this is a, a fairly complete view of how churches get in trouble. I, when we study the seven churches, we're not going to be looking down on them here from Cornerstone's vantage point we're going to be looking over at them because we struggle with the same kinds of things they struggle with idolatry materialism lack of love for Christ lack of sanctification um and and so um so i think there's still symbolic significance to some of these numbers there's going to be 12 thrones plus another 12 thrones for the 12 apostles and the uh the 12 uh sons of israel and and so the number 12 is a number of completion But there's literally going to be 12 apostles on 12 thrones. So there's both symbolism behind the numbers, but the numbers also are uh, uh, literal. There'll be literally 24 thrones. So that's how we're taking care of the numbers. Um, The matter of soon. Here at Cornerstone, we take the word soon from the standpoint of epochs or ages of time or another word, if I can get technical dispensations okay epochs ages dispensations um so the next immediate era is the kingdom Uh, you know the unfolding the seven years and the kingdom Uh, that's next the coming of christ the rapture all of that that's next There, there are no epochs between us and that it is next it is soon in that sense so there's three ways you could take the word soon The word soon could be qualitative, that when he comes, it's going to happen quickly and suddenly. And there might be some passages where that word is used in such a way that, yeah, I'm coming like a thief in the night. It's going to happen quickly when it goes down. And so you better be ready. So there, there is room for that interpretation. Um, that's, that's not how we're taking the, the, the statement here in verse number three uh, or verse number one that these things are going to happen soon uh, or the time is near in the, in the verse number uh, three. So you could take it qualitative as when it happens, it's going to be a fast event. You could take it quantitatively and you could say, well, yeah, it's been 2,000 years, but a day is, is 1,000 years to the Lord and 1,000 years is, is a day. I suppose that works. That's not how I take it. Uh, I I don't think you can get in trouble taking it that way. Uh, I take it as an epoch that what is going to happen with Jesus returning is next. It's at the end of this age, the last days, it's at hand. And so Daniel could not say that. Isaiah had these prophecies about Messiah being cut off, being buried with the wicked, and yet also establishing a kingdom. Well, I... There, there was obviously a lot of texture and events and things happening. A lot of time before all this was going to unfold and a lot of complexity. For you and me, there's no complexity. We have our eye to the sky for the return of our Lord. It's next. And in that sense, it is soon. Epochs or ages. Let's just review the ages as we see them here. We're, uh, not everybody at Cornerstone is a dispensationalist, but I would say uh, 90 to 90. Nine percent of us are. I don't know exactly, but um, we see the ages of the Earth broken up by uh, different stages. For instance, when Adam and Eve were created, they were in a state of innocence. They walked with God. Uh, You know, Moses was told, "You cannot look on me and live." Okay, they looked on God. They were in purity. They walked with God. They fellowshiped with God. Smartest human beings ever to walk the Earth. Uh, I, I, it's been said we use like less than 10% of our brain. They used 100% and they had full revelation. They were, they were, they were, they were created as speaking adults with knowledge. Um, you know, they, they, they didn't have to goo-goo, ga-ga, grow up kind of thing. Smartest people walking with God, fellowshipping with God. That was an era that ended with the fall of man. Okay? Now they have a conscience. Uh, Satan said, uh, they're gonna know good and, you're going to know good and evil. And uh, be like God. And what does God say after they ate the fruit? Man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So now they are navigating life as evil people with a conscience. And, um, and so that is the era of conscience. And so what we see with these dispensations is called house rules. It's like when you go from one dispensation to the other, you have new rules. You just sweep the table of the old and you have these new rules. Now there's, there's ethics, there's, there's information, there might even be tradition from the old eras. But, but the basic rules for how God dealt with man changed after man uh, became a sinner. And it was the, what we call the era of conscience. Now, this next era is debated among uh, dispensationalists, I believe. Human government, is this really a separate era? Basically, when Noah gets off the ark in chapter 9, verse 1, God makes some statements that if man takes man's life, I'm going to require his life at his hand. If an animal takes man's life, I'm going to require that animal's life for that man's life. And so basically, it's like... Many would take this as the, the foundation of human government, that God is saying the earth was just full of violence up in the days of Noah. I destroyed it all, and now in this era, I'm giving you human government. That, of course, led to the Tower of Babel. Okay, And then this man, uh, uh, Abraham, is found in Genesis chapter 12, verse number 1, and God has a new relationship with mankind and the earth. He's going to mediate it through this man, Abraham is going to be blessed. He's going to become a great name. He's going to become a great nation. And all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through him. Because Messiah is going to come through him. Okay. And so this is God's new dispensation of promise that he is working through this promise and this plan with Abraham and his family, his nation. Okay. At the uh, at, at, at some point though uh, they, they are given the law, the Torah. Uh, they are at the, after the Exodus, Moses receives the Torah. And Israel comes into the promised land, and they set up this kingdom, this theocracy, this rule by God, and the Torah is the law of the land. Swipe all the table of all the rules, here's now the Torah. And this is how God is now mediating his relationship with mankind through Israel using the Torah, Okay, uh, the age of the law. In Acts chapter 2, Israel has rejected their Savior. They have crucified their Messiah. Israel is going to be set aside for a time of the Gentiles, though a remnant will still be saved. And we are looking forward to their restoration, but this is called the age of grace, the church age, or the time of the Gentiles. You sweep the Torah off of the table, food laws, festivals, and now you live under the, uh, the church age, the age of grace, the uh, New Testament being the regulative uh, um, uh, scriptures for how we do church and how we approach God. All of that in Revelation chapter 20 and verse number three ends, comes to its final end and we enter into the next age, the millennial kingdom, a thousand year kingdom and then the eternal state. Okay? So what stands between us and the millennial kingdom? Nothing. Nothing. We have our eyes to the sky for the return of Jesus Christ, the rapture of the saints. And it is going to happen soon. It is next. You don't have to wait for some another 2,000-year age. This age may be another 2,000 years, but there's not another 2,000-year age where a lot of things have to change before we're going to get to this kingdom and the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So that's kind of how where we're at. We have a futurist approach. We under, we're approaching this book as a book that is to bring clarity to us that revelation is not new information. That it's, it's really, it's about uh, a lot of Old Testament things being carried forward. That symbols in revelation, we're going to look for them to always refer to something, never to refer to nothing. And we're going to interpret those symbols by the immediate context, the broader context of scriptures if that doesn't work, or we're just going to take it literally if we don't have an answer from the first two. Numbers, we're taking them literally, but we're not removing their symbolic meaning. And then finally, soon means next. This is imminent. Could happen anytime, and again, whenever I talk about taking things literally while being full of symbolic meaning, Jesus was uh, was uh, prophesied to be born of a virgin. The metaphor behind that, the symbolism behind that, is the fact that he is the son of God, and that is the important thing—that he is deity, he is the son of God, but he was literally born of a virgin. So, and if you look at all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning his coming, uh, out of Egypt I've called my son, that identifies him with Israel. He literally went to Egypt. And he literally came out of Egypt. He should be called a Nazarene, which would be a derogatory term. He literally lived in Nazareth and was called a Nazarene. and He he should be born in the city of David in Bethlehem. Uh, Well, he's going to be a Davidic king. That's the important thing. The promises to David are being fulfilled. But he was literally born in Bethlehem. So, uh, All of these things, these symbols, we take them literally and we understand, yes, there's full meaning behind them, but they are literal events, okay? So uh, I hope that's helpful. Uh, Review that with me um, uh, here later if you have some other ideas about this approach. Um, This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. God gave Jesus this revelation to show events that would happen soon, chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Which God gave him to show his servants, that word is doula, slaves, servants, bond servants, the things that must soon take place. All right, um, there's an impressive amount of debate over what it means when it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Is it a revelation about Jesus Christ, a revelation that shows us Jesus? Or is it a revelation that is coming from Jesus? It's a revelation of Jesus, the one he's giving to us. Is that what that means? And, and that would be more the direction that I would take things, that, that this is a revelation given by God to Jesus about future events. And those future events include information about Jesus. So ultimately, yes, it's about Jesus. But I'm, I'm taking him to be the possessor, the owner of this revelation that he is sharing with us so, it is an apocalypse, uh, uh, an apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Again, that is to make something known. By the way, there's an entire genre of literature in antiquities called apocalyptic literature. And it's bizarre. And it's inaccurate. And so, you might say, well, wait a minute. If God chose to use this, uh, this, this, this genre of literature that's bizarre and, ina- and, and inaccurate, maybe revelation the book of Revelation is bizarre and inaccurate. Now, doing that, the fact that genres of literature exist in secular society, uh, take prophecy. There's been various forms of prophecy in secular society from Nostradamus to horoscopes. Uh, you take a horoscope or uh, a fortune cookie or tarot card readings or poem readings. Um, a lot of those are they say something without saying anything. You know what I mean? Like if you get a fortune cookie, uh, let's say your horoscope today, something more serious than a fortune cookie. People take horoscopes seriously. And, um, and uh, uh, your, your, your horoscope might say, um, you, it's going to be very important that you meet someone today. Or you're going to meet someone very important today. Well, what day of your life, if you're not alone in your home, is that not true? And even if you are home alone, maybe you are the important person <laughs> you have had a conversation with yourself. I mean, they're just broad enough to, to always say something without risking being wrong, right? Okay, and so they, you've got prophecies outside of the Bible. And, and, and when you read about them, they were just, they were, they were thorny. They were, uh, you know, uh, you, just, you just didn't know whether to trust them, things like that. But when you come to prophecies in the Bible, it's of a different caliber. It's of a different quality. Prophecies in the Bible are dead-on accurate. And and so when we, when, we, uh, when we look at apocalyptic literature that is secular, we expect it to be uh, bizarre and dark and inaccurate because it is not of God. But when we have apocalyptic literature coming from God, revealing things to us, we expect it to be of a different caliber. I think that's a fair expectation. Uh, we would not... Um, we would not... Import the poor standards of pagan apocalyptic literature into God's apocalyptic literature. It truly would I would truly expect it to reveal. Um, So without this revelation that we're studying, we would have far less understanding of future events. That's just that's the way I'm approaching this. Without this, we would have far less understanding of future events. With this prophecy, we should have more understanding of future events. I'm not talking about setting dates. I'm not talking about writing tomorrow's newspaper. Uh, but I'm talking about knowledge as to where things are going. Why do we have this? Because God wants you to live expectantly. God wants you to live knowing that this is all going somewhere and very, very soon either in the coming of Jesus or the fact that you and I could die and we're going to die sooner than we plan. I mean, that's just the way it works. And, and, and suddenly we find that we're sick and we're facing our death or it just overtakes us and we don't even know what happened in this life. It just ends. And, and so the Bible wants you to live expectantly anticipating the nearness of what is about to happen. God's plan is going somewhere and you and I have the opportunity To be a part of it, not just the opportunity, but also notice the language in verse 1, to show his servants, his doulas, his bond slaves. And Christian, I would just remind you, your life is not your own. So it's not just your opportunity to be a part of it, it is your obligation. And you need to obey God and obey this word. So um, just as a matter of how this revelation was given to us, Jesus delivered this revelation via an angel to John the Apostle. Um, doesn't use the word apostle, but he uses other words to identify himself, and history favors this as being the apostle John. Look at the end of verse 1. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God, the logos of God. You might remember John 1.1. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. And here we're seeing this is the John who bore witness to the logos of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So, the earliest and best witnesses outside of the Bible attest this book to be the Apostle John, not some other John, as the author. And um, the uh, challenges to the authorship would come through the language, because you have John's gospel, and then you have this. You have John's epistles, and you have this. And the language style is different. And they're like, that doesn't seem like the same John. And uh, I I would say this, Uh, John was a very young man when he followed Jesus. If this is, if Jesus died in 33 AD, this would be 62 years after the death of Jesus, some 65 years after serving, uh, after coming to Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Um, I've been a pastor for 20 years, and I preached through the book of Revelation in 2007. Okay, my preaching, my writing, everything has changed so much that you would think, preaching this morning's sermon, I'd have pulled out that sermon from 18 years ago and kind of reworked it, right? I'm not even interested in seeing what I had to say 18 years ago. I mean, I trust what I said. It was biblical. I know my method. But how I said it and how I expressed it, I'm just not interested in that because I have changed in 20 years. Well, John in 65 years would have changed as well and, uh, and, and perhaps grown as a, as a scholar, as a communicator. But uh, my understanding is that John wrote this in 95 A.D., and lastly, this morning, we're going to see that there is a blessing promise to the one who keeps what is written in this book. The one who reads, the many who hear, and keep. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. So we have this beatitude. We have this blessing. And, and you, you can see there's a, something culturally weird going on there. There's one reading and there's many hearing. And the cultural difference is, this is pre-Gutenberg printing press. Uh, you would have, John would have written on parchment, which would be tanned leather, or he would have written on papyri, which would be woven, um, woven reed material. And, and so writing materials were much more expensive. You couldn't buy uh, a ream of 500 sheets of paper for the equivalent of one hour's worth of work in that day. Uh, uh, the Writing materials would be expensive. Uh, and then you would make copies of the scriptures by, by hand. You would write out word by word. You would have a scribe or somebody write out word by word a copy of the scriptures. So going into church today, there's probably between your paper copies and your electronic copies. And some of you have like 15 versions on your phone. And you have two different apps with 15 versions. I mean, we probably have 500 Bibles in this church today, right? Uh, this morning. Okay, in their day, they would probably not have had one complete Bible. They would have had some of the Bible and and some of the scriptures. And so one person would get up and read and people would listen. This is the dynamic of how they did church. And thus it says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear. But I don't think it's just some magic that when these words are sprinkled in your ear, there's just some magic that happens. But rather, and who keep what is written in it. The word keep means to persist in obedience. It means to fulfill or pay attention to something. So you have the words of this prophecy and you are blessed if you behave accordingly. And we're going to see over the next couple of months with the seven churches, as we go through the seven churches, the the, the, the thing that you're going to be called to do is to repent over and over again, to repent. And and, and so we repent because the the time is near. I mentioned that there are seven Beatitudes. Let me just read uh, three more Beatitudes from the book of Revelation that 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 are given for this uh, for, for obeying this book. Revelation sixteen, sixteen says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed, and, uh, and so that, that is a uh, metaphor for obedience, keeping your garments on. It's like that you're prepared, you're, you're, you're equipped, you're ready to, to obey and serve. Revelation 22, behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. In Revelation twenty two fourteen, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. So there are blessings in this book like no other in the Bible. Yet it is a book that many Christians avoid due to differences in interpretation or difficulty in interpreting. So two things I want you to know as we open this book. Number one, I'm comfortable with disagreement. If we disagree what a symbol means or what the overall picture looks like, I'm comfortable with that. I hope you're comfortable with that. I just hope we know why. I hope we lay out our interpretive principles and say, well, my interpretive principle is this, whereas your interpretive principle is that. What I don't like is, well, I just don't feel like God would be that mean, or I don't feel that God would be that soft, or I don't feel, we don't care about your feelings, we care about truth, and we're trying to get down to truth here, okay? And so I'm comfortable with disagreement. And um and that's why we nail down these interpretive principles. They, they are not canon. <laughs> they are not scripture. They are the method that I'm suggesting, and they're open to critique. But number two, there are blessings for reading and keeping this book. Having your head in this space is a really good thing for a Christian. Because you're going to make choices this week, and you have the choice between making a really good choice in the name of Jesus Christ or making a really evil choice. Because you think you can get away with it. And when you have your head in this book and you understand how your life fits into God's overarching narrative, that is very sanctifying. That is very sanctifying to remember, you know what, I could end this day dead and into God's presence. Or he could come today, and I would be really glad if I did not follow my sinful impulses. People who live with an eye to the sky for the Lord's return will make different choices and experience a readiness for his coming. Or for their entry into death and into his presence. So as we wrap up today, I just hope you leave with this idea. God gave us revelation as a blessing. It is a book that we are to study and to keep, and if we keep it, we will be blessed. We had the groundwork. Did I lay this up here again? Um, Yes, I did. We have the groundwork that we laid out today, Futurist Approach. We expect this book to bring clarity. Uh, It's not new information, lots of Old Testament. Symbols. Always refer to something, never to nothing. We take those symbols in context, in the broader scriptures, or we just take them literally. Uh, Numbers, we take them literally while full of symbolic meaning. And soon, this is next in our Lord's calendar. God wants you to live expectantly. He wants you and me to live knowing what is next, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of a tremendous kingdom. He wants us to behave accordingly today. And in such a way that, uh, that we would bring honor to him, and as we step into eternity, we would not be found naked and ashamed. Let's bow forward a prayer, and then I'll ask our men to come, and we will have the Lord's table today. Father, thank you for this book. As we uh, begin a new study, we pray that you would guide us from week to week in it. We pray, Lord, that uh, we would know uh, that you have laid out a future that is glorious, Father, It is also fearful. You do judge sin and wickedness. And yet, Father, also vengeance is sweet to those who have been abused and slaughtered by the wicked. Uh, So, Father, we thank you for the revelation that is ahead of us. And I pray that you would guide our studies, guide our conversation around it. Father, I pray you would help us to live sanctified lives. Bless us now as we remember the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.